A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello, second captaineers. How's everyone doing? Come and enjoy the latest Irish Times second captains podcast because this is a special one. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to cross over live to Las Vegas where our own Ken Early is standing by to co-present the show. He's been there a few days, Murph. Is he dressed like Liberace? Has he gone all Hunter S. Thompson? Has he been to see Celine Dion yet? We'll find <laughs> out all of this from the MGM Grand very shortly. Ken is following the whole Conor McGregor thing and so hopefully we'll get a greater understanding of the man who's captivating a lot of Ireland and the US, Irish sports people regardless of the discipline don't usually appear on Conan O'Brien Murphy or have the whole sport uh, whole sport resting on their shoulders so I'm looking forward to hearing what the flame haired flamethrower of truth has to say hmm. I'd say the Liberace no the Hunter S. Thompson slightly better chance and what was the third one Celine, Celine Dion. Dion almost certainly uh, I would yeah there's like a 97% chance he, Ken's a big fan of uh, Celine Dion uh, Heather Smalls of the M people Really late nineties, you know, songstresses. He's a, he's a big fan, big it, fan. So I'd be surprised if he hasn't checked that out yet. It's Mark Horgan here for own the main man is back on Monday. Murph, Her- actually, sorry, before we begin, can I actually tell you something mm-hmm. about my trip to Crow Park last Sunday? They played an M People song at halftime in Crow Park, and I don't know why they would do that. Which one? <laughs> Which one? I they all sound the same. I mean, you're expecting me to come up with a song title? I was, I was there with my brother. I was like, that's not. And he was like, yeah, that's. That's the MP. I bet the crowd loved it, today. Well, I don't know. We weren't rocking out, and uh, the people in very close to us weren't rocking out. But it was almost that, that just struck me. I, that's that's weird. I, I should send an email about that. I'm going to guess it was moving on up. How are you, Murph? I'm good. I'm good. You Mark. look worried. Uh, well, well, I think I know why. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the greatest why, uh, hurlers of all time, Nicky English, is about to join us in the studio. I know oh, yeah. you, you always want to make a good impression. Mm. And number two, Nicky the Bone Crusher English is also the purveyor of the world's strongest handshake, and you're worried he'll mm. break some of your brittle little hand bones. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm just going to arrange so that I'm. I'm holding something heavy. You know, like I've got a box in my hand. So when he comes <laughs> in, I'm like, oh, I'd love. To, I'd shake her hand, but I've got this large box, so I'm just going to hold it there until. Do you reckon that's a hurling man thing? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's that, a large hand as well. Yeah, most of the nerve endings are probably gone, <laughs> so he doesn't know. He can't feel anything anyway. So that's plus, you have to pretend everything's a okay when you're shaking hands with them. Yeah, so of you course. Don't want them to think you're, you know, yeah, weak. You're not hard or whatever. Yeah. Well, see, he looks you directly in the eye as well. You know. Yeah. Just to see if there's any flinching going on. Uh, I'm going to get straight down to podcast presenter business here, Murph, because on this day week, yes, the night of Thursday, July 16th, we'll be recording the podcast live in the Sugar Club in Dublin. You've got to be there with us. It's the Irish Times second cap and sports night with Robert Oreck. We'll have some podcast regulars such as Ushina Moylesey. Uh, we'll also have some superstar guests, some superstar guests, Murph. Mm. 
And we'll throw in some delicious things like food and drink so you can wolf that down free of judgment while you watch Owen Murphy and Ken do their thing. You'll need to apply for tickets today or tomorrow so go to irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. You can click on the link there. We'll also tweet about it as you're listening to this right now. So get applying as soon as you can. Um, and Murph, mm-hmm. tell the people how much this once in a lifetime offer is. How much it's oh, um, How much it's going to cost them. We've crunched the numbers. Yeah. We've been in touch with our many accountants uh, and they've come up with... I, I've. I believe a very competitive price range. It's uh, zero euro, zero cent for all of you. So it's a completely and utterly free event. That's Mark. right. Zero euro, zero cent. So get to irishtimes.com for slash second captains. US Murph will be coming up a little later in the show. But right now, we're going to go here. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a new steel. Viva! Thanks a lot, Pepe. Go ahead, Yes, sir. And the new World Federation of the Championship. Yes, Ken is reporting for us live from Las Vegas. He's following the McGregor phenomenon. He's got his tap-out T-shirt on and tiny little UFC hot pants. He's holding his mic with his four-ends fingerless gloves. Talk to us about where you are right now, Ken. <laughs> right now, I'm standing in the... Uh, media room uh, just at the MGM Grand Arena, uh, which is a big kind of ballroom-sized room with a really ugly casino-style carpet and the middle of a raised uh, platform where about an hour ago Conor McGregor was uh, uh, prancing and strutting and preening for a horde of Irish supporters and some other supporters as well, has to be said. But mainly, it seemed to me, Irish fans uh, who had come to see him at the, uh, at the public workout. He was the last of four fighters uh, in the public workout and I got to say, he puts on <laughs> he puts on quite a show, and this is uh, uh, you can tell that it's a part of the uh, job that he really enjoys, uh, where he gets up, uh, sort of engages in a, in a, a long uh, striptease uh, over a period of time, and then uh, uh, goes through a few paces, stretches, sort of preens, poses, flexes, uh, and generally uh, shows himself off uh, to the adoring faithful. So um, yeah, it's been. Um, it's been an interesting couple of hours. Well, before we talk about McGregor, um, uh, you know, people I think seldom go to Las Vegas all alone. And mm. you've been there a couple of days, and you've been sending us photographs of you taking in the city by yourself, you in a roller coaster, you at the Bodies Exhibition, Stony the Face. roller coaster by yourself. <laughs> That's an interesting one. How have you found your uh, Ken alone time? Well, I, I think there's a reason why people don't usually go to Las Vegas by themselves. And it's a, it's something I've discovered over the last couple of days. It's that it's a really <laughs> terrible place. It's really it, full stop. Uh, but particularly uh, if, you're, if you're by yourself, it, there's something slightly alienating about walking around these gigantic casinos, uh, watching all these people on mobility scooters with oxygen tubes <laughs> in their nose feed uh, their grandchildren uh, grandchildren's inheritance into slot machines it's um it's not a pretty uh, place to be i mean if you're by if you're with someone else you know maybe you can oh you know let's do this let's do that you know you're kind of talking about other things if you're by yourself you kind of tend to slip into uh, a, a bit of a reflective mood and uh, when to look around at this and to think that this represents in aggregate form this is apparently what we as a species want it's an unsettling uh, frame of mind to spend <laughs> a lot American of time dream. in well, it is. You can't argue with the, uh, with the numbers. Uh, it's not just the American dream. It's obviously the Chinese dream as well. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese people here in Las Vegas gambling. Uh, the really rich ones who uh, don't need to bother going to Macau 
and uh, people of all uh, nationalities, shapes uh, and sizes. Oh, especially sizes. <laughs> so talk us through your uh, regular Ken Early Las Vegas day then. Um, well, the first day, um, I got here around six in the evening, uh, went to the hotel, uh, spent a bit of time walking around the hotel. The hotel uh, is the MGM Grand. It reminds me weirdly of um, if you were to take the Dundrum Shopping Centre and graft it onto the Hollyhead Ferry. Um, <laughs> it's somehow Glamorous. the impression. Sorry? Glamorous. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something to do with the carpets, slot machines. And the kind of the the impression of a big big rooms with quite low ceilings, and um, you know people sort of sitting around. Uh, uh, and the, you know the Dundrum part. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of shops here. That sort of shiny floor they've got in Dundrum. I mean, it's it's I suppose Dun, as Dundrum Shopping Centre was originally conceived in the dreams of its designers. Um, you know, uh, so I thought, okay, well, I've, I've got a bit of time to get to know this, but I'll probably spend a good bit of time here, so maybe I'll go and have a look at some of the other places. So I kind of went up the strip and went into, you know, the Flamingo, which seems to be, I got the impression the Flamingo was maybe past its best days. Um, Caesar's Palace, uh, you know, Paris. Paris is, you know, the casino, which is all meant to be like 19th century Paris. You go in, there's a kind of, everything is done up like La Belle Epoque. Uh, you know, there's, there's these kind of fake uh, storefronts and Parisian streets with a fake sky. Um, you know, there's a lot of people feeding coins into slot machines, more than you would find in the actual Paris, it has to be said. But, um, yeah, there's Mandalay Bay, I went, in, went to, which is supposedly has a kind of a South Sea, Polynesian, um, Mutiny on the Bounty vibe, I guess. Um, uh, the thing about all these places, though, regardless of their uh, styling, you know, their, their different uh, sort of packaging, Excalibur, I nearly forgot Excalibur, which is kind of a Disneyland, uh, King Arthur type uh, situation. Um, they're all exactly the same. Every single one of them, you go in and it's just the same stuff. It's the same machines, the same tables, all the same stuff. It's just the sameness of it is actually uh, really kind of, after a while, depressing. And you're kind of like, Jesus Christ, how do I kind of escape from this? And then you notice that there's actually nowhere to sit down. You're kind of walking, like you're, you're walking for miles. These places are huge, you know, uh, walking and walking and walking. Then it's like, oh, there isn't actually anywhere to sit down that isn't sort of in front of some kind of gambling console or, you know, in a restaurant where I could pay a stupendous amount of money for, you know, uh, for whatever I want to eat. And you just kind of, the whole thing is obviously designed that way so as to force people to always if they basically if you want to get off your feet you have to spend money and uh, i suppose um, the results of it can be seen all around the place seems to be doing quite well good to see ken's getting into the spirit of things isn't it well listen i mean that's why we <laughs> sent our best man over there you know i mean it, if i was over there i'd probably be telling you about how it's yeah listen, it's the greatest place i've ever been i've never seen you know mark you can see egypt uh, 19th century <laughs> paris and uh, Mandel and uh, and the South Seas all inside 500 meters. You can eat a Chinese meal in (laughs) an Egyptian surroundings. Uh, Ken, I don't think our listeners will be too surprised to hear that we're not, I suppose, as convinced by the McGregor phenomenon from a sporting perspective in comparison to a lot of other people in Ireland. But the whole business, the occasion, the show... Um, it's quite fascinating, and I'd say it's fascinating to, to see it that an Irishman is having such a clear impact. Well, his his impact is gigantic. Um, you know, c- compared to all the other guys, 
he said he's very different from all the other fighters. And uh, the contrast is especially marked with obviously his opponent Mendez. Uh, I mean, Mendez came out. He was he was first up for his um, for his open workout. He comes out just a very modest looking guy, kind of unassuming expression, soft, gentle brown eyes, cow eyes you could say, um, downcast as he. Uh, uh, makes his way out onto the stage and then engages in some light uh, wrestling uh, kind of grappling. You know, if you've seen Foxcatcher, you've seen the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, he, he keeps his, his clothes on at all times. Uh, there is a, a row of cameras uh, in front of the stage that he's performing on. And all the cameramen are there standing up um, but with their cameras, which means that they're blocking the view of the fans who are all, li- who are, who are all sort of behind a barrier looking up at the stage. So they can't even see... Uh, Mendez doing his workout. Uh, he did, you know, he he does a bit of wrestling, then he does a bit of punching. Doesn't do any kicking, um, as far as I can see, but doesn't do any showbiz stuff of any kind whatsoever. When he eventually comes out and he has to do like a little um, Q and A with, you know, uh, the sort of UFC uh, hostess uh, who asks him a couple of questions. His microphone is broken, so you can't even hear what he's saying. You you can hear broken bits of it, like he says, uh, "I'm I'm just gonna whoop some," and then it goes silent. Well, he says ass, but. Uh, the uh, microphone is broken, so the crowd start booing him, and you know he's kind of like, "Oh, someone get that mic fixed," you know. Uh, does his little interview afterwards. Doesn't really say a whole lot. Uh, whole attitude is just very kind of quiet, very businesslike, uh, pretty normal, you could say. McGregor, McGregor comes in, and you know, s- sort of stomps in, uh, obviously wearing his shades. Uh, stomps in past everyone, goes up to the fans, runs along by the fans, sort of high-fiving everyone up onto the stage, then kind of goes through a bunch of, essentially poses for several minutes, uh, taking off various items of clothing, throwing them into the crowd, uh, you know, then goes through a series of quite spectacular stretches. I mean, this is the thing about Conor McGregor. He is in pretty phenomenal shape. You know, that's the whole purpose of this is to show off for 15 to 20 minutes um, just, just in what amazing shape he's in, and literally everyone is just there filming. You know, the, people aren't even taking photographs; they're all just filming. It doesn't matter how much of the data it's, uh, how much, how much of the memory it's taken over their phone. Everyone's just filming this guy, and he's the whole thing is, you know, is designed for show. It's all for the benefit of the fans. It's all kind of exalting himself, but it's just something that the others are not doing. I mean, it takes, I suppose, a particular type of personality to be able to do that to get the sense that all these people are here to see me, all these people want to see me kind of strut and flex and pose and preen and to do all that and to actually love it as opposed to being, you know, maybe slightly embarrassed about, oh, this is ridiculous and can't we just get on with the, uh, can't we just get on with the actual uh, sparring kind of uh, workout bit? You know, he eventually does that, but he was was up there for three times as long as Mendes doing all that. Uh, You could see that he had told all the camera guys uh, at the front of the stage to kneel down or to get down so that the fans could see, you know, he wasn't going to make a mistake like Mendez, just go and do his workout without even noticing these fans are watching. He was like, well, they've got to be able to see they're the, they're the main ones. And after he's finished, he goes and signs, it seems, pretty much every autograph in the place. Um, you know, he's up uh, up to the fans. It takes forever. I mean, we're all waiting there in this scrum thinking, this guy just has no respect. Um, you know, doesn't he realize that the, the world's media is, is waiting here while he signs autographs for these uh, for these fans? Uh, but he went and, you know, did all that. So that took about another 15 minutes. And I eventually came and uh, did this uh, little interview, you know. OK, let's hear what he had to say to you, Ken. He, he didn't show up. I mean, you can't. Where's the pride? Where's the fighter in him? Do you know what I mean? And then, and then I see him sitting back and him and Chad are, like, tweeting back and forth, little buddies and all this bullshit. When, when, when a man is close to death, 
they try and bunch Buddy up together, you know. They, they know it's over for them, so let them be little pally, pa, pally pals all of a sudden now. But he pulled out that contest with all of the talk, all of the build-up, and not one mention of the fans that flew over, not one mention of nothing. So we are different people, me and him. And his, if he if he grows a set of balls, his time will he'll get it as well. His time will come. They're open about lacking respect for you. That doesn't bother you in the, in the slightest. I don't give a shit about respect. This is I'm I'm here on my own journey. As long as my team respect me, as long as the people in my circle have respect for me and what I'm doing, that's all I focus on. Assuming you win the belt, uh... all buddies here. Everyone's trying to be friends. You know, I, I I don't have friends in this business. I don't have friends in the game. I am not friends with my, my my competitors. They this is I am ruthless in here, and I'm I'm looking to take every single one of them out. So they need to bunch up. Oh, Speaking right. of bunching up, Connor, a lot of fighters, uh, Aldo for one, have talked about maybe the need for a union or an association of fighters as uh, so they speak with one voice. What's your, your feeling on that? I handle my own business. I'm, my business is good. So handle your business. Yeah, so um, he didn't really want to talk much about the, um, the union point. And the union point is something I find very interesting, actually. Um, to, when you look at how the UFC uh, is run, um, it's a really remarkable organization. It's, um, if you compare it to some of the other sports, for instance, uh, the UFC is, is very, very um, tight. It very tightly controls information about its finances. Uh, it doesn't really give out a lot of information. I mean, you'll, you'll hear things like, say, for instance, Dana White um, talking about, uh, oh, Josie Aldo could have made $4 million. Could have made $4 million from this, uh, you know, if he, if he hadn't pulled out, you know, Every time Dana White says a number, you got to kind of take it with a with a pinch of salt. You know what I mean? You, <laughs> I'm not quite sure that four million would have been the uh, would have been the kind of figure. The point about it is that the UFC pays out an extraordinarily small percentage of its revenue to the fighters who are in fact doing all the work in the UFC. So um, it's difficult to to know the exact figures, but there's been a couple of kind of you know in depth looks at it, and they reckon. You're talking about roughly 10% of the overall revenue going to the fighters, which is amazing. I mean, what a business model that is. 10% of the revenue going to the fighters. Now, if you think about like a Premier League football club, what's the average in the Premier League? About 60%? About 60% of the revenues that a club makes uh, is going to go to the players. I mean, that's if a club is actually keeping quite a tight rein on its on its finances, kind of running itself, you know, it's a lean, mean machine. And you're still talking about 60%. Boxing, if you think about boxing, um, the the percentage of the total revenues of a fight that, that goes to the fighters is is huge compared. To, I mean, you're talking seventy to ninety percent of the revenues, and then you know the promoters are getting the rest of it. Um, UFC ten percent, so that's incredible. You know, you think about how much, think about the money coming in, and then think about the money going to the fighters. Now, McGregor is obviously one of the handful. I mean, maybe the biggest name in the sport right now. So he's getting looked looked after, and and you can see this. Plenty of footage of him hanging out with Dana White and with Lorenzo Fertitta, who's the other, who's the other kind of power broker in UFC. Um, and it's clear that they're, they're kind of looking after him, keeping him on side. But you've got other fighters, among them Aldo, as I mentioned in the question, who uh, are saying, we need to, we need to band together. We, this is, we're getting absolutely screwed here by the UFC because we have no union in our um, sport. Unlike, I mean, if you think about American sports, they've all got, you know, a player's union uh, as a consequence of which the players in most of the big American sports are getting looked after, you know, pretty well. Um, they don't have that in UFC. So some of the fighters are calling for it. Now, if you, th if you think about what McGregor could do 
with his kind of clout, with his influence, as maybe the biggest name in the sport, if he was to stand up for that, then I, you know what I think? You know what I think would happen? I think that he would get all the respect in the world from all the other fighters. I mean, there's plenty of the fighters now that talk about him, you know, they, they kind of resent him, they don't like his style, you know, Aldo and Mendez calling him a, the Joker, uh, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, that's kind of cosmetic in a way. If he was to say, I'm going to stand up here for my brothers, you know, if one of us goes to war, we all go to war, you could say. Um, then I think you'd find a lot of the other fighters would say, you know what I think, Conor McGregor, maybe he talks a little bit of nonsense sometimes. You know, maybe he's kind of brought a bit of a wrestling vibe to a sport, which previously, um, you know, kind of stayed away from that sort of thing because it was considered to be in poor taste. And, you know, maybe we resent it a little bit, the fact that not having fought that much, he's kind of already got right to the top and is, uh, and is getting paid really well and so on. But you know what? He's, he's kind of standing up for the other fighters. The guy's heart's in the right place. You know, if he was to kind of add his weight to those calls for a union, well, that would be a huge thing in the sport. But as you can see, at the moment, he's looking after his own business. And uh, I think he's on pretty good terms, as you can see. Uh, certainly the Dana White and, and Fertitta, the two uh, kind of big players in the, in the UFC, are quite keen to emphasize their close sort of personal links. You know, whether you see McGregor going around and Dana White's Ferrari or, you know, hanging out in the, uh, sitting in the chair of President Mobutu uh, in the office of Fertino, which you could see in the, in the notorious documentary, you know what I mean? Um, I think maybe he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's ensuring that business is good for Conor McGregor, as he says, uh, but maybe not so much for, uh, not so much interested in helping out conditions for other fighters. I suppose his attitude to them is, you know, why don't you just do what I did? And you're sure, and you can be sure that his percentage is far, far larger than ten percent as well. How how concerned do you think the UFC are Dana White is about this fight? Because it seems to be quite clear, and it's this isn't to take away uh, anything from Conor McGregor, McGregor's sporting abilities and the performance that he's put in so far, and the shape that the guy's in, and how talented he is at, at what he does. But it's quite clear that he's been wrapped in cotton wool to a certain extent and only put in with a certain type of fighter. It's clear that he's making the UFC the sort of money that a lot of these other fighters, like the the Kawhid uh, Mendez, as you say, these sort of guys aren't as uh, marketable and aren't making the sort of money that the UFC and Dana White wants to make. How concerned is he now about the fact that he's going directly in with the opponent that they didn't want him to go in um, go in with straight away he's going in with a guy who's a wrestler who has the ability to actually uh, cause him a lot of problems where it seems up until this point they've matched him against people that it looks pretty clear that he can beat well yeah I mean I, I think that is definitely true I mean in terms of he's been up against guys who were definitely beatable and that this is the this is probably the toughest um, fight that he's had um, I mean, he did address that point. I mean, he, he doesn't have much patience with this idea that, you know, it's funny when you look at it, you haven't fought anyone who's, um, you know, a good wrestler. And uh, he's, you know, this is nonsense. You know, people are saying I've been kept apart from certain guys. And, you know, he uh, certainly McGregor is, is affecting the usual. I will knock him out in the first round. You know, that's his uh, that's his usual kind of shtick. I mean, as for Dana White, whether he's worried, maybe he is a bit worried. I mean, McGregor's a bit of a golden goose for him, you know. Um, it's that, that much is pretty obvious. I mean, the way that the UFC works is uh, that, I mean, they, they didn't have a great year last year in terms of pay-per-view sales. 
and pay-per-view sales are dead. And they're saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter about the pay-per-view because, you know, we're, we're, we're generating more revenue from general TV sales. But pay-per-view is where the real money is in this sport. If you can have a big pay-per-view event, you can make as much money in one night. You know, you can make a huge amount of money very quickly from pay-per-view. And at the, at the moment, McGregor is really the only guy they have who is – uh, who is able to maybe sell a lot of, uh, of pay-per-views. So they have to, you know, they want the Golden Goose to keep laying eggs. Certainly if, if he was to lose to Mendes, nobody in the UFC wants that, uh, as far as I can see. Um, how concerned he is? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, the bookies' odds, you know, McGregor is, is only, a, I think, a slightly better than Evans favorite, um, which suggests that at least the bookmakers aren't totally convinced that, you know, he's... Um, He's going to put this guy away. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it is a bit of a risk. Well, you know, then, then you're into the question of, well, if he was to lose, would that necessarily mean that, uh, he, that the Golden Goose was, uh, was cooked? <laughs> so I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> so it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> would, the, would the Golden Goose be cooked? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, obviously, it would, it would, damage, it would damage him in that. At the moment, he's on this, he, he's on this incredible sort of... Uh, uh, run of success and, and, and talking himself up all the time uh, and and pretending to have supernatural powers. And, you know, if he was to get knocked out by Chad Mendes or beaten by Chad Mendes, suddenly, um, you know, he, he may end up looking a little bit ridiculous. But it's not going to take away from the fact that he's still probably the biggest uh, showman, maybe still the biggest draw in the sport. Even if he was to lose and to lose credibility and to become ridiculous in the eyes of some people, he would still be able to generate more interest um, than maybe any of the other fighters. So, you know, he could still come up, but, you know, if, in answer to the question, basically, I don't know how worried he is, but I, I do know who he wants to win this fight. It's pretty obvious. Everybody UFC would like Conor McGregor to win this fight. Okay, Ken, go and have some fun on the fruit machines. We'll check back in with you before we wrap up today. Cheers, Marky. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. Has he even gambled yet? Doesn't sound like it. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think that's the point, really, isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, I don't know about that now. I mean, I think the point is to take the temperature of one of the world's great tourist destinations, you know. But can you truly say that you've experienced Las Vegas to the full if you don't gamble? I mean, this is it. I mean, I suppose he owes it to journalism to gamble at least once while he's over there. We've had some special games in the football championship in recent weeks. Now we want the hurling to deliver for us. Let's talk some championship. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight. 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 Right, we're very excited to be joined in studio by some hurling royalty, Nicky English, and some Monaghan royalty. Uh, big, big, big Tom's here. No, no. We, listen, we couldn't afford the security for Big Tom. We need snipers all over the place. Okay, so, Malachy Clerk of the Irish Times. How are you doing, lads? Very well. Uh, Murph, remind us of the three massive games in the Hurling Championship this weekend, uh, first yeah. of all. Well, it's all in Thurlis. Uh, Saturday, Dublin Limerick at 5 o'clock and Cork Clare is at 7 o'clock. And then the Munster Hurling final Sunday at 4 o'clock is Tipperary against Waterford. So, Nicky, in the Hurling Championship now, I suppose we're left with the undoubtedly the best eight 
teams in the country. It's going to be down to six uh, after this weekend. Who do you think is best placed at the moment from what you've seen so far in the championship to kind of derail the Kilkenny tip axis? Um, it, it based, I think Galway slipped back a little bit in my eyes last weekend. So really Warford are still a bit of an unknown. They, they could be capable of doing it. Uh, they were good against Cork, but really you'll know more about them after the Munster final. Possibly Clare are probably bubbling along underneath the surface there. Uh, it's been a long time since they played. They had an easy win against Offaly. So it'll be interesting to see how they go against Cork. They might emerge as someone that's capable of uh, upsetting that uh, apple cart or, if you like, the, the perceived uh, final of Kilkenny and Tip. Yeah, the bookies still have Tip as massive favourites for the game this Sunday. Um, why are there still a big doubts about Waterford? Um, I, 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 think that's, I think that's just the fact that Tiberi have been you know, up there for the last number of years. They played in the Ireland final. I mean, I, I think Waterford really are an unknown quantity. Like they played Tip in the league semi-final mm. in Nolan Park, and Tip were missing a whole lot that day. Were ex- were again very hot favourites to win that match, and and ultimately came up with no answers to Waterford's strategy and Waterford's energy. And uh, I'm not sure that that Tip should be as wa- as hot favourites as they are. That people are probably underestimating Waterford a little bit, but. You know, that's just. I think that's going. That's Waterford are out of the memory a little bit because it's been mm. a month or six weeks since they've played. Is there still a snobbery, Malky? Do you think amongst uh, hurling people about teams like Waterford, who, uh, and I think a lot of people came alive to it after that league semi final. Mm. That right, they're playing a very certain way. It's quite a defensive uh, structure, very, very heavily managed. I mean, it's not even so much actually a snobbery about a defensive style of play. It's actually a snobbery about teams that seem overly. Managed, planned. overly coached, overly yeah. planned, exactly. Uh, I think you're right to a certain extent. I think if if you even read uh, some of the papers today, um, Waterford did their press night last week at some stage and Dan Shanahan was one of the guys rolled out. And even Dan was uh, sort of going, will we have a game plan for the game? Ah, will we, yeah, I don't know if we will or not. We might just go out and play it the way we see it kind of thing. And you're yeah. going, Dan, hang on now. Derek McGrath wouldn't say that. Like Derek has a very, you know, precise way that he wants his team to play, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like you know, someday in in Gaelic games we'll move on from from the the idea that we're not all going out playing off the cuff. Like um, I think I think Nicky's right. You know the, that the Waterford are are kind of we don't know where their ceiling is. Like we all sort of suspect that eventually they run into a team like Tipperary or like Kilkenny that'll just go, right lads, you know, the the train stops here kind of thing. Um but we don't we just don't know. Uh they they could be anything. They're still at that stage where they're young. They don't really know how good or bad they are. They they haven't got a hiding off anybody to to tell them that no, this is this is your station in life yet. Um, and so that's exactly it, you know, that, that they could be anything. That 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 league semi-final uh, against Tipperary, like, I think that was sort of the first day when people's idea of them changed a bit. Um, because Tipperary did exactly the thing to them that we all presumed they wouldn't be able to come back from. They scored two early goals, w- built up a six, seven, eight-point lead. I couldn't remember exactly what it was. And the whole thing about Waterford then was that with their sort of defensive system that it was predicated on getting in front and, and staying in front kind of thing. Um, but they 
that was the first day when people kind of went, wow, this team, they don't know when to stop. They they don't know that that they're beaten. They have these characters and players with charisma to decide, well, just because Tipperary are seven or eight points ahead of us doesn't mean that we stop playing. And uh, that's when they started changing it around a bit. Yeah, um, and if, if you're looking at Tipperary, Nicky... Um you know, they, a lot of their strengths seem to be up front, and Eamon O'Shea would be would have been seen certainly before he he got the job as Tipperary manager as very much a forwards coach. Do you think that you know that that they're confident enough in their own ability to just go out and say, right, well, we'll score enough, we'll get enough goals against this team that don't really get that many goals to actually to win this game, or do, or do you think Eamon O'Shea will pay them the respect of changing of will pay Waterford the respect of changing the, the way that they play to to nullify the threat that, that we've seen from Waterford this year? Yeah, I, I suppose... I think you take it's worth taking a step back at, at the way Waterford actually play first. So, you know, the fact that... Like, they say it's defensive, but really, is it that defensive? They, what they do is they drop... They, they they transition very quickly from defence to attack, but a lot of their... Kevin Moore plays around midfield, or he plays number 10, and, and their half-forward line drops back, uh, and they... Ultimately, they, their full forward line then Dunford comes back out around the middle of the field and they crowd that. It's not so much that they all go back into defence, but they win a lot of ball in the middle of the field. Now, if you watch Kilkenny last week, they they they're not entirely dissimilar. They move back as well from the half forwards. They drop one one back and there's two man mid, uh, mm. two man full forward. And Tipperary played exactly like that against. Uh, against Limerick. So you don't think that there's a massive difference between what Waterford are doing and what Kilkenny and, and Tip are doing? No, I, I think it's slightly more, more exaggerated, mm. but it's not, and, and they have to, they're travelling more, but they're, everyone is dropping back a little bit trying to create more space up front. It's also evolved, Nicky, yeah. hasn't it? You I know, mean, like from, from when Waterford played uh, Wexford, uh, they had, like, there was times when they had, you know, 13 men in their own half kind of thing. Like, game by game by game, they have changed that up a bit. And, you know, they're, they're, what they have above all, and their system wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth a damn if they weren't all confident, if they weren't all playing together, if they weren't all within it, able to do their own thing. You know, like, if they, if, if it wasn't free for Colin Dunford to take off and sprint 40 yards and take on his man, if it wasn't, uh, you know, if Austin Gleeson was told, no, you have to stick to the system, instead of he has the freedom to catch the ball, run up the sideline, play it inside, put it over or put it wide from, from 67 yards. Do his Ken McGrath impersonation, yeah. Precisely. The, that, that, the, the, that, Nicky's right. If we, if we get bogged down talking about their system, we ignore the fact that within it, they're allowed an, a huge amount of leeway because they they have that sort of charisma amongst themselves. And plus, really, the reality is that they have excellent hurlers. Yeah. You know, when the, they have a really good first touch, uh, they use they to date in the matches. They haven't panicked. You know, even when they got the bad start against Cork the last day, they drove some ridiculously bad wides early on. Austin Leeson, that you mentioned, was was a prime uh, candidate there for that for ball wastage see if you play like that you actually have to use the ball really well and, and most of the time I see them they're using the ball really really well they're, you have the likes of Dunford Jake Dillon they're taking on the opposition mm. they're running at them they're winning freeze and it puts, probably puts a high tariff on 
Morris Shanahan scoring the freeze that they get and also that they cannot be wasteful from out the field because you know they have to they have to use the ball well if they if you only have one one inside because the rest of them have to make the ground from half forward midfield in really so I think they, they they're well used to it and they've been working well and uh, you know if you watch them at under 21 the, a lot of these players are like they're stars in the making they're they're really they're good now but they're they're going to be really good so it's a question of how how far they've actually progressed as to whether they can be tipped now yeah and uh, i suppose really then what we should be talking about from Derek McGrath's point of view and the job that Derek McGrath has done is not so much that he's reinvented the wheel from a defensive structure point of view but more the the, the really tough stuff of uh, moving out a lot of experience from that Waterford dressing room over the last 18 months and actually giving these young players who we've seen at Harty Cup level, at, uh, you know, at, at schools level, under 21 level, and actually giving them their head and giving them, giving them, handing the team over to those guys. That's really the job that he's done that's been, that's been brilliant. Yeah, and, and I suppose the fact that they actually, they were in Division 1B, got a, they got a little bit of breathing space as well to, to yeah. build up their confidence. And like, it's not a sort it's of place like, to be now all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, be, but yeah. Like, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I suppose there, there are certain, the, the teams don't want to be relegated, but when they get back into that Division 1B environment, there's, there's plenty of competition there. Uh, and you actually get a little bit of space that you're not absolutely cutthroat for relegation. Yeah. If you if you get through, you're going to get through to the quarterfinal, and most of them are anyway. And, and and it's but like like they have a very good pedigree, as you say, through the through the schools. Uh, and then if you take a WIT now, have been hugely competitive the last two years in the Fitzgibbon Cup, mostly backed by Waterford players. Really, they came out of nowhere to win it the year before last. So you know, there's they, these fellas have pedigree. Like. Waterford need this title more than Tip, though, don't they, Mal? Three games away from the All Ireland, winning the All Ireland for the loser, two for the winner. Do Tipperary really care that much about getting another Munster title? Yeah, I'd say they do. Yeah, um, you know, you have to remember last few years they haven't won it. You know, they they ran into Limerick two years in a row and went in as heavy favourites and 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 didn't win. You know, there's still a few of them. I, I, does Bubbles O'Dwyer have a Munster medal? I, I, I think Tipperary will feel they seriously need to win yeah, the Munster Yeah, title. I would have thought so, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, under un, under current management, they haven't won league or any uh, titles. So I think they'll they'll seriously... And I think that'll be one of the reasons that they'll be very hard to beat. Yeah, you think uh, you think to, it, it's tips to lose? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of... I. I'm, I've always been over the time that Eamon O'Shea has been in charge a bit sort of beguiled by, by Tipperary I always think they a should lot win of people are, I think, but yeah. I always think they should win like I always I think every time that they've played Kilkenny to my to my horror I've tipped them and they still didn't, didn't bloody win um, so I think I think their look they, the job they did against Limerick was incredibly professional um, and clinical and they just when you have players who can score uh, almost regardless of the situation, like Bonner Maher, like Shane Callan, like Bubbles Dwyer, they, they kind of should win most games that they go out to. I think the only thing here is the fact that Waterford could be, could be anything, but I would still expect him to, to beat them. Uh, Cork and Clare is uh, a huge game, I think, because we haven't seen anything from Clare since the All Ireland the replay in 2013. And uh, you know, you we've heard so much about Clare <laughs> in the intervening period. We've talked so much about Clare. We haven't actually seen them play, you know, a top class championship game of hurling and win it. So this is the moment, really, for Clare, isn't it? It's an absolutely huge game. 
maybe they have more riding on this weekend than any other team of the six. Yeah, for sure. Like their their form against Limerick was relatively poor, and, and Limerick turned out afterwards against Tip. So it's very hard to get a form. And they've 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 come out last week and won their first championship match, as you say, since the All Ireland final, hammering awfully. But that's really no benchmark. So it's hard to know really what they bring. Um, we've we're pretty sure as to how Cork will play. You know, they're they're relatively damaged themselves, I would have thought, and didn't improve that much against Wexford uh, from their first championship match against Waterford. So I, I think there's, there's, you're pretty sure the level Cork will bring. It's pretty, it is beatable, I think, and if Clare were at their best, then they would, they, they would be well capable of winning this. I think they have the danger in the forward, so I, I think Clare, it's, it's, it's a chance for them to really get, get up and running and get yeah. momentum. But the, the, more you, the more we talk about Clare, the more I certainly think... God, you know, I'm I'm rating them on two years ago now, mm-hmm. and it, you know, and like that's the big yeah. thing. No, I, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. You do, you just don't you actually don't know. know to be, if it yeah. was if it was the clear of two years ago, they're certainly well capable of beating Cork in the, in their current form and their current guys. But as I say, I, I don't also, know. They also seem to be quite a a different side to to two years ago. Um, like even before he got injured playing for the footballers. The loss of Podge Collins this year. I remember seeing Clare in a couple of of league games, and just kind of going, "Where, where is the invention here?" That you're right. Tony Kelly is an amazing hurler. Shane O'Donnell has is an incredible play, having a great year at full mm. forward. But take out the two of those, and Conor McGrath was injured at the time, and you're going. Where is the X factor here? Because that's what Collins was, you know. He was such an X factor. He could pop up at wing back and collect ball and play it into O'Donnell. Or he could play at wing forward. Or he could, all around the pitch, going to where the game was and taking it and, and just, you know, playing the game himself, steering it to his own liking. And they, I think that that's what they've lost um, uh, uh, above all else. You know, that and the, and the fact that, the you know, in all those games where they, where they hadn't won, they kept getting players sent off. You know, so the, there was too almost too little invention at the, at the front and too much destruction at the back. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're just not going to win these bloody games if if you're doing those things. Yeah. What about Dublin Limerick, Nicky? Two teams that appear to have gone downhill, both of them since last year. Limerick should still probably have enough. Yeah, I I I think yeah. Um, again, hard to know like. What, how how they were against Westmead or how Dublin against were against Leash. They certainly mm. didn't improve on their first championship outings anyway. Um, just Dublin have been disappointing for me. But I still, when you go back to the league quarter final in Crow Park in March, Dublin absolutely hammered Limerick, and Limerick really haven't shown a lot since. So it's hard to be sure about Limerick either. To be to, uh, yes, I think they can beat Dublin, but uh, might be saying more about Dublin than it is about Limerick. What you reckon, Mal? I don't know how you could call that. Game. I mean, they they both seem they both for two teams that had, that three months ago you would have said, you know, that this is this could be a six seven game uh, championship, you know, or six seven team championship. These two have just kind of fallen off the side, the side of the earth. Like, um, you know, Mick Carton, Mick Carton leaving the Dublin panel this week. Like. This isn't some prima donna you're talking about flouncing off in a huff. Like Mick Carton has been a mainstay of that squad for for the guts of a decade, you know. And and if if that's the sort of level of dissatisfaction that there is within the squad, you got you got to wonder. But then at the same time, you know, 
who are Limerick to say that that they're in any better state? You know that that you're exactly right. Like they got a hiding off Dublin in the league quarter final, and if it can be believed, haven't really improved on that since. So how how can you on any level say which side's going to win this? All right, lads, looking forward to it. Nicky Malhi, thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians. And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. How's the hand? What? How's the hand? Oh, it's, it's, it's actually fine. I think he may have heard us talking about it, to be honest. He toned it down big time there, the handshake. Don't think it was toned down that much, to be honest. No? M- maybe much like. Much like Nicky's own hand, my he's actually killed my nerve endings as well. Maybe I can. Have I been crushing your hand every time I've shaken your hand without even knowing? Now, now you come to mention it, Murph. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Wimbledon wraps up this weekend, Murph. You've been watching much of Andy Murray? Uh, I have a little, actually. I have to say, I'm starting to really like him. Yeah, uh, well, see, this is it. I, I think I can trace it back. I, the, the exact moment when he shed all those tears mm, yeah. to Sue Barker. yeah. Like it's really pathetic that you this know this isn't going to be easy. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very, quite a good Andy Murray actually. Um, you know, and Owen can't do any impersonations at all. It's another string in the Horgan bull that I don't even I don't know sweat about as much. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> Certainly a lot less hairy, but um, yeah, I mean, I I I've kind of liked him for a, for a long. I even had a sneaking liking for him even before that. Um, I think it's mainly because he works hard. He's honest. I think he seems pretty sound in interviews as well. Yeah. Uh, shows, I think, the right level of disdain for Wimbledon supporters of him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if if you're talking about you know the fans all the time, I'd be inclined to think, well, you know, he backed Scottish independence as well, which I yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, um, and when it was like blatantly obvious that he shouldn't have said that, you yeah. know, for the point of just like from a purely like Michael Jordan sponsorship kind of vibe, he, one thing he definitely should have said is, you know. The UK, but he's A-OK. got more to him than that, which which I think no, is I a think very he, good sign. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I've so I've been rooting for him. The problem with him is, and I tell you right now, yeah, he wipes sweat off himself with a towel after every point. That's ridiculous. That is kind. Of, I mean, how much Come are you on. sweating in one point? Like if it, so, if he serves an if, he wipes the sweat off his brow every time. Watch it, yeah, watching the semis. I have to say, like lots of people, I'm not hugely knowledgeable about tennis, Murph, but mm-hmm. I love watching Wimbledon. So some of the players involved, I've never seen before. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. sorry, everyone. You know, McDevitt has all this shit covered. I'm just a producer. <laughs> oh, by the way, um, I don't know. I should, I should probably have told you last week, but Unreal Kant has actually retired. <laughs> you know this, right? You're, Where you're, are the we're... laughs going to come from? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, did you see Elie Nastasi's get up? By the way, he came dressed like. Uh, I can't remember the name of... Um, now I can't even remember his actual name. What the hell is going on with me? Basically, Borat. What, the, <laughs> what's the name of the comedian? Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen. Thank, Thank you, Simon. He, you know the movie that he made about the dictator? Yes. Ilya Nastasi came dressed like that guy to Wimbledon a couple of days ago. Like with full military wow. dress. Lapels he still got it. Still annoying after all these years. Yeah, still annoying. You um, know, we... Yeah, I mean, we, we, we actually don't like Ilya Nastasi here because uh, we had him on our radio show a number of years ago, and he was, like, the worst. He was the rudest man you've ever spoken to. Like, Ruder than David Hay. Yeah, ruder than David Hay. And, like, we've seen you on the question of sport over the years. We love you, Illy. Just mm. don't piss us off this much. 
Anyway, you were saying. Yeah, anyway, I've been loving the men's competition because some of the competitors are complete caricatures. It's like they've ma- they've been made up for our own amusement. It's like something out of a bad sports movie montage. Yeah. You know, like the Craddy Kid when Danielson is going through the rounds. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, we've got Dustin Brown, the Jamaican with dreadlocks down to his lower back. He used to travel around the world in a camper van, you know, taking in some lower level t- tournaments. That's like yeah. Tin Cup, right? Yeah. And then Nick Kyrgios, he's a young bad boy from Australia who wears terrible jewellery, pink Dre beat headphones. Like Murph, real bad boy. He encourages fans to make noise. Someone needs to stop him. <laughs> the, the, listen, he's a runaway train and someone's going to have to cry home. Yeah, and then Ivo Karlovic, six foot eleven from Croatia. Yeah. Uh, Andy Murray was described as a giant slayer after <laughs> <laughs> after beating this guy. He's a bit harsh. But they're all like characters from Street Fighter 2. Yeah, I, I understand exactly. Where, like, yeah. I actually saw uh, Andy Murray shaking hands with Ivo Karlovic at the, at the net. And it was one of the funniest things yeah. I've ever seen. Because Andy Murray's like six foot four or something. Yeah, he's, he's a huge he's, man. He's in the semi final tomorrow I think he's playing E Honda is he <laughs> no he's, he's actually playing Roger Federer uh, Roger Federer would be more of a Ryu sort of man rather than E Honda and then Novak Djokovic plays uh, Richard Gasquet so that's Guile versus Ken there Murph okay. uh, and in the women's semi- you've lost me now I want you to know that <laughs> in the women's semi-finals uh, Serena versus Sharapova that's uh, happening today and this pair straight up don't like each other they, they really actually don't. really don't like each other no no I, I know it's a gag Mark, but they, yeah. they really straight up do not like each other at all yeah, uh, and, and you know it's one of these we were talking about it last week. You know, one of the great sporting rivalries like Cork and Kerry, but it's not really because uh, Maria hasn't actually won a game in ten years. Uh, so. Muguruza and Radwanska are in the other uh, semi final. By the way, in big sports movie news, Murph, go on. Um, seeing as we mentioned sports movies, there Rocky Seven or Creed is coming out later on this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a big, it's a big deal. Apparently, Apollo's son is looking for a title shot. Uh, and he goes looking for Rocky to train him, Murph. And you know, Rocky doesn't. Rocky at first doesn't want to know. You know, he's like he's been through the mill with boxing. He's out. He's of still boxing, playing with know. that robot. Just, he doesn't. He doesn't want. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I believe I'm guessing he changes mind. Changes mind later on with some dramatic results. Somewhere towards the end of Act One. And boxing fans might be interested in hearing that Tony Bellew, the Liverpoolian boxer, is a star in the film. Murph. He plays pretty Ricky Porter, so it sounds like it's going to be a good one. Like, is there not? Have we? Are we? Are we we're done. We've every idea has been. We've met a movie of every idea that I was ever had. Then that's it. Because I mean, that sounds like Creed's son. Mm. I mean, it's like, what's going on here? I mean, it's I, like I don't know, Mark. You know, the state of Hollywood today. So that's just a whole other podcast, isn't it? Let's really? get to US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, Forty! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Brian Murphy, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great, boys. Uh, summertime in America. We had a big Fourth of July uh, holiday over the week, which I know you guys, uh, you guys, as, after your big stay, you're damn near honorary Americans. So I'm sure you guys lit a firework for uh, Independence Day, and uh, and on we go into July 2015, guys. Well, sadly for me, it'll be our last chat together without Owen for a while. He'll, he's going to be back next week, so feel free to air any problems or irritations you have with Owen, or more importantly, <laughs> any compliments towards Murph and I. Now, we may as well get them out of the way. It's all one big. It's all one big happy family, isn't it? No grievances, as far as you know. Right? <laughs> that's, that's not what Mark, Mark's agent has been telling me. <laughs> uh, Brand Mark has had a, a real banner week this week. Get Brian Murphy to, to build Brand Mark. That's what he said. 
<laughs> well, I listen, I can be a kingmaker, right? So uh, <laughs> if you need me to, if you need me to, to get the, uh, you guys need to break out for the uh, the new podcast, the uh, mm. Mark and Murph podcast. We can create some dissension if need be. So oh, I, I'm good. at your beck and call, guys. You need me to be divisive, uniting. Uh, I, I'll, I can I can wear either hat. Thank you, Brian. Well, listen, in a year's time, I don't think you'll be forgetting the name Carly Lloyd, Brian. Judging by the frequency of your <laughs> tweets on the subject, you jumped aboard the women's U.S. soccer team bandwagon pretty heavy since we spoke last week. As did the whole country, right? I mean, my God, I certainly wasn't alone. Uh, that that was a uh, quite a happening, and it's so funny. I, I uh, by the way, I'm not sure a year from now I'll remember the name. <laughs> yeah. Lloyd, right? yeah. <laughs> Mark my words, yes. guys, that I am not boasting <laughs> that a year from now I will remember Carly Lloyd. I should. You hadn't already forgotten the name Carly Lloyd, had you? (laughs) Well, this is all the, uh, this is the, uh, yeah, I've already forgotten it this week, right? No, um, remember last week, this is all predicated off of you last week, stumping me with the name John Brooks, who was the uh, U.S. soccer player who scored a goal in one of our World Cup games, and I was chagrined, embarrassed, and uh, uh, flustered. Uh, But now I'm going to hang my hat on this and then say, the difference being the epicness of winning a championship versus the U.S. men who can never get past the round of 16. So that's going to be my, uh, my new thing because I do remember the 99 women quite well. Mia Hamm and, and Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain and Michelle Akers. I could go on and on, boys. I can prove my chops that 16 years later I remember the U.S. women who won the World Cup. So I should remember this team that won the World Cup. I will say, I don't think this team had as many recognizable stars as the 99 team. There was something about that 99 team that was such a happening. It was the first on American soil. It was only the third Women's World Cup of all. It was, you know, so dramatic and all that stuff. But this one on Sunday wound up being, in the end, quite a happening. And uh, I'm sure you guys, if you've seen the numbers, if you haven't, staggering television viewing numbers, which we've been spending the last few days sort of dissecting. What does it mean? You know, was it just a, was it just that it was a Sunday of the 4th of July weekend? It was a, you know, played in Vancouver, Canada. So a friendly uh, time zone for all of us to watch. It wasn't like in South Africa or something where you had to be up at three in the morning. And, uh, and it had, you know, it featured the, the lure of a championship, the U S against Japan. This is not just a round of 16 game. This was for all the marbles. So there was a lot that went into the fact that nothing else is on TV. You had a little baseball going, but no NFL, nothing head-to-head against it. The NBA Finals are over, et cetera. So a lot added up to people putting their eyeballs on. And then the name you mentioned, Carly Lloyd, just explodes. And what you need is you need – I mean, women's soccer could not have asked for a more spectacular happenstance than to have a historic performance like Carly Lloyd did. Because, you know, had they won one to nil or two to one or I don't know, three to two, something you know, would have been exciting and everything, but to have Carly Lloyd score three goals in the first sixteen minutes and to have the team score four in the first sixteen minutes could I mean emblazoned it in everybody's brain. So the numbers wound up being that it was the most watched soccer event, men's or women's, in the history of the United States, which says something. I mean, I know we have more people now than we did 16 years ago, but still we have a much more fractured media landscape, and sports TV ratings are so splintered now and so many different things. It becomes the second most watched sporting event in the U.S. in 2015, behind only, only by a fraction behind the uh, NC2A College Men's Basketball Championship, the Final Four, which actually surprised me because I, I would have thought that, that the, the U.S. women's 
the U.S. women's win was certainly more talked about around the water cooler than Duke's win in the national championship, that's for sure. So I was a little surprised. That just goes to show you the, the long-lasting sort of history of the men's basketball. But, yeah, you know, Obama's checked in with his big phone call. They've been invited to the White House. And Carly Lloyd out of South Jersey by way of Rutgers University. So she's a Jersey girl. She's not one of our California. You know, we like to brag about our, all our California women athletes uh, that are so – you know, it seems like this is the golden playing fields out here in California, Brandy Chastain and all those uh, people. But she's from Jersey. She's a tough Jersey girl. I was joking. She, you know, can think Meadow Soprano, right? Think tougher version of Meadow Soprano. And uh, the three goals in, uh, make her an all-time. So now the question is, guys, what kind of endorsements does she get? How big of a star does she become? Or how much of a blip was this on the radar screen? Yeah, I mean, we did actually see those uh, TV audience numbers and also saw that they exceeded those for the NBA Finals, the deciding Game 6, and for last year's World Series Game 7, uh, which is just extraordinary. I mean, these, they, I mean, the, I think it was Christine Brennan I saw first tweeting these, the USA Today journalist, and like the first three comments were immediately, well, duh, like obviously there's only two cities involved in the NBA Finals and two cities involved in the the World Series. I mean, and I was looking at that thinking, well, that's a pretty ridiculous argument to make. These are supposed to be the, you know, the the banner occasions in two of the three biggest sports that you have over there. And uh, the women's uh, soccer team annihilated both those figures. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, I understand. You can always try to be a naysayer or try to poo-poo things or try to be a cynic, you know, especially in this world of sports journalism and sports media and sports entertainment that we all do you know there's always people to take two sides of every sports story so you can try to poo-poo the numbers but i would not i i would i would certainly celebrate them if i was a uh, if i was looking at them properly as a great happenstance now of course the fact that it's an international championship that's held once every four years you guys know this you guys do this with the european soccer championships and the world cup soccer you guys know how those events every four years and of course the whole world watches the olympics although not as much anymore. Olympics, TV, Olympics ratings are really down um, compared to, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. So there's an example of something that is global that doesn't have the same hold on us. I think it does speak to the rise of soccer. I do. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that soccer, we talked about this last week, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's ready to knock, knock down the big three, you know, baseball, basketball, and football. It's just not as much a part of our culture. But it's coming, man. It's coming. To, to say anything otherwise is to totally ignore reality. Um, you know, I, I look at, like, the, now that I have kids, you know, you start seeing the world that they're growing up in, whether it's something like same-sex marriage, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court that you guys voted on even ahead of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's interesting to think, oh, my 7-year-old and my 3-year-old are going to grow up not knowing any different. They won't know any different. They'll say it's fine to them, men, men, women, woman, man, woman, whatever. And I think that's kind of neat to think of it that that's the world they're going to grow up in. And it's kind of the same way with soccer, uh, that they're growing up knowing that, hey, man, when the World Cup's on TV or when the European Championships are on TV or the CONCACAF Gold Cup, which is going on now with our men's soccer team, which already has – I'm not going to say it has any kind of buzz about it, but it has certainly more interest already this week that we played Honduras in the men's – Gold Cup yesterday, and there was more like, hey, look at that, another uh, international soccer game. Hey, the men won, you know, just a little bit more interest. So it's coming, and, and these numbers are so spectacular. There's other reasons, too, the, of why everybody's involved. Why did the women – you guys posed that question last week, and I talked about it on my show. You know, are the women as popular as the men, you know? And 
there's so many different things about it. the sociology of, of women athletes being still kind of a, a new phenomenon, relatively new phenomenon in our country and in the world. Um, you know, the, the appealing nature of the way women at the women's soccer team seems to be same way in 99 as they were in 2015. They are a really easy team to like, and I don't know if it's that way with every soccer team that goes far. You know, I'm, they were they were extremely team oriented. They were extremely uh, gutsy, tough, tough women who athletic and uh, had seemed to have a great esprit de corps. You know, so uh, I guess soccer kind of lends itself to that when it's played well by beautiful teams at uh, the beautiful game, as they call it. So, so there were a lot of a lot of factors that went into it: the likability of the team, the the international glamour of a World Cup, and again, kind of what I said at the outset. Everybody loves a winner, man, you know, and if we're going to be wasting the World Cup in something, you guys, it's like, hey, baby, USA, right? USA. Because, I mean, you know, it's always good. We've been knocked down a fair few pegs over the last 30, 40 years, ever since, uh, you know, from Vietnam on. So it's always good to be reminded that every now and then the USA can still do something number one, which everybody grew up thinking was our birthright, you know, to always be the exceptionalism of America. It's kind of nice to have it actually happen for once. And Brian, it's quite clear then that the impact on the television ratings were clear for everybody to see, but what about the impact, um, you know, as as far as the celebrations go? Um, it's quite rare that the whole country will have a success to celebrate. What? How did the celebrations, I suppose, compare to something like the Olympics or the Ryder Cup golf or something like that? Yeah, you know, that's where you got to draw the line. I mean, that's where, um, well, certainly bigger than Ryder Cup golf, I'd say that for sure. Um, but Olympic athletes like a Michael Phelps would be our last big Olympic athlete. You know, I was just thinking about Missy, when we were talking here, I was thinking about Missy Franklin, our women's swimmer, who um, who's went to college here at Berkeley, here at Cal Berkeley, and she's about to have this huge summer next summer, I'm sure, at the Rio Games. So Olympic stars individually can still transcend everything as far as becoming, worming their way into our consciousness. Now I would imagine, and I haven't seen yet, if I would imagine that Carly Lloyd and them are going to do the, the chat shows. You're, you're, well, they would have done David Letterman, but he's done, he's gone. But, you know, you're Jimmy Kimmel's, you're Jimmy Fallon's, uh, that set. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see how Carly Lloyd becomes a star out of this, if at all. I would think she should. You know, every Wheaties boxes. Somebody was joking on my uh, Twitter feed. A guy a fellow saying she should just come out after halftime. You know, with holding up a Wheaties, a Wheaties box to her face. You know, right now, so she can run down and play the second half holding a Wheaties box over her face. So I mean, that's always kind of dating back to Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner. Dating back to him, you got those famous athletes on the Wheaties box. So as far as celebrations, it's a little different when you have them provincially. There's more of a provincial celebration and occasion. Merchandise is bought, shirts are worn. I don't see that happening with the U.S. women's soccer team. I don't see people wearing jerseys or wearing Carly Lloyd shirts or, you know, the same way Steph Curry's jersey is number one in the NBA now because the Warriors won the championship. So there is a limit to this, you know. I do want to caution all my enthusiasm here, and, and it's neat. I think it's great and everything. I don't have daughters. I'd probably feel a lot different if I had daughters. People I know who have daughters are super inspired by this whole thing. But I think there is a limit. Now, I think, to be honest, that they will now, the next time they'll be in our focus, probably, guys, won't be until the Women's World Cup in 2019, which I believe is in France. And I think that's kind of their lot in life right now. Although I should strike that, the 2016 Rio Games, there'll they'll be some interest, too. But they'll be going up against 100 other sports, too, so it won't be as intense. So, so there is a limit to this ebullience. 
Uh, just finally, Brian, you mentioned the sociology of, of women's sports a little earlier. Um, are we at a point now in the US where women's sports are analysed on merit as opposed to that was very popular considering it was women's sport? That's a great question. That is the, set, you, you, that's the central question right there. I think the answer right now in July of 2015 is that it's still being evaluated on the ladder. Wow, women's sports. Look at women's sports. Look how far they've come. However, I think for the first time kind of in, in that movement since Title IX, you know, which, which equalized the playing field in, in our schools for women's funding and all that, it's starting to be analyzed on its merit. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a nice sign. We're not there yet. I still think there's like, oh, look, you're inspiring little girls to be what they want to be. I think Hillary Clinton tweeted out something like, you know, girls can dream and all this. And nobody says boys can dream when the, you know, U.S. men's Olympic team does something or, you know, the U.S. men's basketball team wins something. We don't say little boys can dream, you know. But now you got Hillary Clinton saying little girls can dream. So there still is that element of, wow, look at them. It's so cute or it's so inspiring that girls can, can, you know, take down their ponytails and be tough. But I think, you know, Carly Lloyd, Hope Solo, even as controversial as she is, and it's kind of funny that we, we on this show, you guys and I have spent so much time talking about domestic violence in the NFL and stuff, and Hope Solo is the very personification of that. She's been arrested for domestic violence. Also, the charges have been dropped, I believe, in her cases. But still, that's the kind of stuff that in the NFL is a huge black guy. It's kind of interesting that there was a bit of a double standard there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, Carly Lloyd's performance, you know, Hope Solo's athleticism and goal is the kind of stuff that people are like, wow, look at that. Look at her footwork. Or, wow, look at her nose for the goal. Or, look at her nose for the ball. Or, man, what a killer instinct Carly Lloyd had. Or, man, what a, what a shutdown goalie Hope Solo is. Or, wow, what a great defender Julie Johnston is. So, it's kind of nice to see that on occasion. You know, you still see that. I think women's tennis, for example, is something where that's totally, that, that's arrived. Like, people analyze Serena, I think mostly Serena Williams on her skill. Uh, you know, women's golf, I think people analyze Annika Sorenstam or, or now kind of, who is it now, Lydia Ko or whoever, mostly on her skill. But when you get to something that's relatively new, like women's soccer, there still is that sense of like, yeah, gosh, isn't it great? Girls can do this. But... Carly Lloyd took a big step for women in, in proving, you know, wow. That was, I mean, people were calling it just simply one of the great individual performances in U.S. international sports history. You know, I mean, so it wasn't just that she was an inspiring, inspiring little girl. It was that she kicked major butt on an international stage in spectacular fashion. So it's a great question, and it's kind of where we're at. Hopefully the transition's being made to just enjoy them, enjoy their tactics, enjoy their strategies, enjoy their, you know, their skills and their athleticism and their toughness. I think, I think that's maybe the legacy of this team. If, you know, you'll have to check back with me in six months, a year, two years. But I'd posit that maybe that would be the legacy of this team is to start to really enjoy these, these women as tough athletes and not just, not just you know, poster faces. Thanks for the chats over the last couple of weeks, Brian. Once again, I feel better informed about U.S. sports. And this week, I also feel hungry for a bowl of Wheaties. So thanks a lot for that. <laughs> funny thing is, is that the Wheaties endorsement, while a, a classic um, symbol, very few people eating Wheaties anymore. It's kind of like Weetabix over there, right? Nobody eats Weetabix, right? So uh, I actually uh, eat Weetabix. I've got to say it. I had a bowl of Weetabix only it? today. Yes. God, you are always brand Mark is shilling again. <laughs> yes. God, uh, uh, this, uh, it's actually, you've created a monster, Brian. Hello to the Weetabix people, if they happen to be listening. <laughs> 
I didn't get you guys in trouble. Mark and Murph, great having you guys. We'll welcome Owen back with, you know, a somewhat open arm. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, guys, all the best. Okay, we're nearly finished up, Murph, but we've just got time to go back over to our man in Las Vegas. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a new steel. Viva Thanks a lot, Pepe. Yes, sir. I'm the new world federate of the championship. Call Yeah, Ken, we heard one of McGregor's fans in the opening bed there. Has the Irish invasion happened? Is that man walking around the MGM Grand? Is he the new featherweight championship of the world? <laughs> anyway, the fight hasn't happened yet. Sorry. Yeah, um, the Irish invasion, yeah, it has. It has uh, it started to happen today. I mean, I saw a couple of guys in, you know, a couple of Northern Irish guys in Glasgow Rangers uh, tops. So I don't know if they were here for McGregor. I mean, might they have been? Does he have cross community appeal? I'm not sure. Um, maybe he does, but you know, there was okay. There was a few people, uh, pe- people in the flight. But today is when most of the people um, Wednesday, I should say, is, is when most of the people, uh, the Irish people, seem to be arriving, uh, and I'm sure the number will continue to increase over the next couple of days. Um, as to though whether it's gonna, whether it's gonna make a real impact on this place, I'm not sure. This place is so gigantic. There are so many people here that it's it's it kind of reminds me a little bit of the um, when the 2002 World Cup went to Tokyo and just disappeared and got lost. Everyone was like, "Where's the World Cup?" No, it was just like the city is so stupendously gigantic that you can have something like the World Cup going on, and it's kind of like, "Oh yeah, you know, it's not even that big a deal." Um, you know, maybe three and a half thousand Irish people. Um, you can imagine if they're all gathered in one place would make a lot of noise and make a lot of mess. Uh, but whether you're going to be able to get a real sense of um, you know, wow! This is this is a Poznan style. Um, you know, this is this is Irish people really giving a demonstration of their uh, of their modern traditions. Um, you know, I, d- I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen. You're going to have to wait and see. You know, see how many more uh, turn up. We're going to post a couple of photographs of Ken uh, on his tour to Las Vegas. Uh, they'll be available while the show's on. Ken, the photograph of you on the roller coaster. Um, I've never seen. Um, I don't know whether it was despair or you certainly you had no smile on your face. There was no joy there whatsoever. It was a deep it was ennui. A p- I, I looked at that and usually what you're looking at is just like, you know, you've pulled a funny face. But that photograph seemed to me to kind of be like a commentary on modern life. I mean, you, you seem to have boiled down all of your concerns about Las Vegas into one facial expression while traveling at high speeds on a roller coaster ride. You know, on, on roller coasters when I was, when I was a kid and, and I always used to love them. Um, they were fun, and um, being on that, and I've been on one for a long time, you know. But I saw this one; it looked huge, so I said, "All right, well, I might as well." And um, I got onto it, just sort of childlike faith in, uh, you know, nothing can happen, nothing bad can happen to this roller coaster. There's like a little seed of doubt in my mind, no doubt, hugely exaggerated. Uh, but you know, when it sort of looks like it's going to come off the rails, I kind of expect it will, and, and so that so I've got genuine sort of fear for my life, which is not a which is not a pleasant emotion. The other thing is that my viscera seems to have somehow become a little looser in my body cavity. Uh, I'm not quite sure about this. I mean, maybe as a kid, everything was just a little bit more tightly packed together. Maybe I've just sort of got a little bit larger and and have correspondingly greater. Uh, inertia and momentum you know when, when i'm when when all of me is going in one direction it doesn't like suddenly being called back to, to go in the other direction there's a sort of a real sense of oh, 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 which uh 
nearly led to me uh, puking on, on several occasions uh, in the one sort of two minute two minute roller coaster experience. So uh, overall, it was a, a hugely unpleasant and terrifying experience, and one which I would not recommend to anybody. What do you got planned for the rest of the day? You going to take in an all you can eat buffet, something like that? Celine Dion's residency still going? Oh, poor old Celine Dion. I went to the All You Can Eat Buffet um, yesterday. Um, I thought, well, uh, given that I'm I'm actually a guest in the hotel, surely this this has got to be the cheap way to eat. So I went along. There's no man but an eating machine. (laughs) Well, I queued queued up. Why don't you not put a hair boot in you again? I, I, I queued up for, for like a few minutes. There's a lot of queues here. It's an annoying, annoying thing about it. There's just so many queues. But I, I queued up. And then I, I got to the front of the queue and I said, and they said, oh, you know, how many, sir? And I said, just one, please. And um, she said, that'll be 32.42. And I thought, Jesus Christ. And, and I felt this stab of anger, you know. But I, I knew that it was too late to back out. So I thought, okay. So I, I kind of went in with this resolution, right? Well, if I, I'm going to get 32 to 42 words of food here, uh, I'm going to get at least that. So I started eating with a kind of grim determination. And uh, I don't even know if I managed to get the 32 42. You know, I was eating a lot of kind of, you know, lukewarm, kind of congealed food. Uh, I was starting to feel pretty sick. I was looking at the 14.99 all you can drink offer and thinking to myself, really? <laughs> do people really do that in these in these surroundings? I'm not sure. Um, looking around, I don't know if I necessarily want to want to do that in in the kind of it's not it's not the nicest environment. The, the all you can eat buffet, but you know, um, you you can get plenty of food there. But it's it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be cheap. Thirty two forty two. I didn't think it was good. Not at the exchange right at the moment. No, I don't. I didn't think it was a good deal at all. It's great work all round uh, for the Las Vegas tourist board that Ken's done throughout this show. Mm. Uh, it, it, you're the greatest ambassador they've ever had, Ken. Ken, well, all I'm, I'm saying, if the Las Vegas Tourist Board want to want to get in touch and, and and you know maybe make some changes to how things are going to go for the rest of the week, then you know they, they're they're welcome to do that. I'll, I'll hear them out. I mean, at the moment, I haven't heard from them, so you know if if they got a problem with anything I've said, then you know let's uh, their people can talk station. to my people and, and we can see uh, we can see you know what happens for the rest of the week. Ken, enjoy the fight. Looking forward to talking to you after it. Cheers, Mark. Talk to you soon. Okay, that's all you've got from us this week. Last reminder of the live show at the Sugar Club next week. Get your tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. We'd love to see you there. Thanks so much for listening. The anchor in chief, Owen McDevitt, is back next week. So follow us on Twitter at second captains and we'll talk to you then. Thank you, Murph. Thank you, Marky, and well done. Well played, Thank sir. Thank you, Kieran. Well done to you. And thank you for listening. Goodbye, folks. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home.